Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Muscle Engineer Podcast. I am your host, Sota Ray, and this is episode 7 of the podcast in which I'm about to be joined by Mr. Eric Trexler to discuss his work related to the Fat-Free Mass Index and uh, some of the misconceptions around it. During our conversation, we go into the origins of the index itself and some of the issues with the original paper, the results of Eric's paper and what they mean for establishing a natural muscular potential. And we also have a very practical um, discussion on using the FFMI to determine how you should approach your muscle gaining period and bulking. So um, I think you're going to find a lot of value in this. I really hope you will enjoy it. And if you're listening to when this episode originally comes out, which is right around Christmas, I hope everyone has a very Merry Christmas and a happy end of the year. And um, I hope you will use all that delicious food you eat to fuel your training and reach your own muscular potential. So uh, without further ado, here's episode 7 of the Muscle Engineer Podcast with uh, Eric Drexler. Eric Trexler, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. How are you doing today? I'm great, and I'm really looking forward to chat with you. Yeah, me too, for sure. To kick things off, could you please tell us a bit about what is it that you're up to right now these days uh, with your research, and what is it that got you interested in doing that fat-free mass index study that you've recently published? Yeah, definitely. So starting out in college, I always wanted to do physical therapy, and then I got involved with a little a little bit of research during my undergrad degree at Ohio State, and through that, I kind of realized that I wanted to stay in the exercise science field, and I, I came down to UNC Chapel Hill, which is in uh, North Carolina, and I've been at UNC for the last four and a half, five years working on the research that we do. We're a very active lab group, so we do a great deal of research. Most of it involves either dietary supplements or body composition. They're, they're kind of two things that really interest me with research, and it probably comes from my background. Uh, before I got into research, I was a bodybuilder and a powerlifter, and uh, I, I still compete in bodybuilding and plan to get back into powerlifting as soon as my body allows me to. I'm working through some injuries. But the Fat-Free Mass Index paper was a direct extension from my interest in bodybuilding. As a competitor, you would always hear these numbers get thrown around about exactly how big a natural bodybuilder can get. And when I looked into some of the evidence those numbers were based on, I was not convinced that those numbers were necessarily accurate. So my advisor, Dr. Abby Smith-Ryan, she's an excellent scientist and very well connected. So she had a couple colleagues that said, you know, we've been collecting all of this really well done, uh, strictly collected DEXA data from American football players. And it turned out we had done the same at UNC. And so it was starting to come together where we had access to a great deal of well collected DEXA data from a great deal of American football players. And I felt like it would be the idea ideal scenario to look at basically how big a natural athlete could really get. So that's kind of how the project came together. Awesome. And uh, before we dive deep into your study, I think it would be helpful to elucidate a bit where the original fat-free mass index um, (laughs) limit came from and maybe the potential issues with it that you also mentioned that they seem a bit uh, suspect. So could you please dive in a bit on the details around that uh, Corey study? Yeah, so the the first time I ever saw fat-free mass index in research literature was actually completely on the other end of the spectrum. The first time I've seen it in the literature had nothing to do with how muscular you could get. They were trying to use it to determine if people were actually malnourished. So they were looking at, is there a value that's so low that we could use that to determine when we should be concerned about somebody's malnutrition. So that was in the early 1990s. And then around the mid-90s, a research group, the first author's name is Corey, they published a paper in 1995. They were interested in looking at the other side of that spectrum basically how big, how much lean mass could a natural athlete put on if they were trying to maximize their muscle mass. And I don't want to come off as being overly critical. I think Corey and the other authors had a very interesting concept and did a very good job on the paper itself. And basically from their paper, they determined that 25 as a fat-free mass index value would be the upper limit for a drug-free athlete. And so basically what they're doing is taking the fat-free mass divided by height squared. So it's basically like BMI, but you're removing body fat from the 
the numerator of that equation. So my, my issue with Corey in that entire paper is not the research question, not necessarily the way they addressed it. The biggest issue to me is that when you look through the paper, I don't believe they accessed a population or a sample from a population that truly represents the upper limit of human potential. And what I mean by that is, first of all, their sample had 74 natural athletes and 83 athletes with a history of steroid use. And I don't think that the sample is quite big enough to make sweeping generalizations. The other issues that, that come up with the sample they used is that it was a fairly lean sample. The average body fat percentage was, I think, about 12.5%. And what we see is that people with higher body fat levels are more likely to be pushing the natural limits of fat-free mass accretion. If you look back at a couple old papers in sumo wrestlers, uh, sumo wrestlers obviously carry a tremendous amount of body fat, but they also have fat-free mass index values going well into the mid-30s. The other issue is the inclusion criteria for who they sampled, and to me that's the most problematic part. They basically went to gyms in, I believe, the Los Angeles and Boston areas to sample people who had been lifting for at least two years. And I know for certain that after I had been lifting for two years, I was nowhere near my genetic potential. And I think that goes for most lifters. So to me, that's probably the most problematic part is that, you know, think about your buddy who's been lifting weights for two years, but isn't really certain what they're doing. That was the inclusion criteria at a minimum. And in the methods, they say the sample contained some high level strength and physique athletes. They don't necessarily phrase it that way, but they indicate that there are some really legit lifters in the sample, but it, it's written in such a vague way, it, it's difficult to tell how many there, they, there were and what that really means. Yeah, I think uh, if you try to tackle the issue of uh, human potential in general, you would be looking at a sample of, of course, ideally, but you would be looking at a sample of millions of people, or at least hundreds of thousands of people. And we're talking about a sample of under 100. So yeah. that's that's a bit uh, difficult or kind of brave move to extrapolate. There's a lot to unpack there. I think we should focus on your paper first. And if in case anyone is, is interested in the Cory paper in a very deep, manner. Uh, Greg Knuckles has a fantastic breakdown, very thorough, and I will link that so everyone can read it and get up to speed with the fine details. So, yeah, and, and by the way, Greg, um, I, I know the article you're referring to. It's very well done. And I don't know if you know this, but Greg actually joined our lab group this year. So Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, he yeah, told it, me. It's really nice. So he's been excellent in the lab, and I would highly recommend the article that he wrote. I hear he teaches, uh, what is it that he told me he teaches? Dance or yoga or something like that? <laughs> something weird i was just shocked <laughs> yeah I, I think he has yeah at least one yoga class um <laughs> i think he might be teaching weight training as well but um he's definitely got a yoga mixed in there <laughs> yeah that must be funny anyway um i was actually very curious to know how you how you recruited the participants but from what you told me there it seems that you already had the data and you just had to interpret it is that correct yeah it was one of those things where some universities are very proactive about monitoring body composition in their athletes. And it's a very difficult partnership to achieve, but a lot of sports science programs like my own try to form positive relationships with the different sports teams. And, you know, it still has to be voluntary for the athletes and voluntary for both parties to enter that agreement. But in an ideal scenario, we like to think of an athletic system in which we can provide scientific support for the coaching staff and the athletes. So in our laboratory, we do body composition monitoring for several sports, football being one of them. And through some colleagues that we've worked with in the past, it became very clear that we had all been collecting DEXA data on these high-level football players and all doing so in a very standardized uh, manner. And so the more we talked with these colleagues, the more clear it became that we could actually put this project together in, in a really, uh, really informative manner with really standardized procedures and that it would really give us a sample by which we could attack this research question a lot more directly. Awesome. And uh, just for anyone who doesn't know, me included. NCAA, what does that mean? Is that uh, kind of like you have the Premier League and then there's the Premiership? So the Premier League would be something like the NFL and then the NCAA is the division under it or 
How does that work? That's a good question. So in, in the United States, with American football, there is no major minor league or secondary league. Basically, what happens is the NCAA is the National Collegiate Athletic Association. And in football, there is really, you go to the an NCAA football team, and if you truly excel during your time as a collegiate athlete, you will then be recruited and drafted into the National Football League, which is really the only major professional football outlet in America. So it's not like there are several leagues drawing from a huge pool of talent. There's really the NCAA feeds into the National Football League. So if you have any aspiration of playing professional football at a high level, you will garner attention from the National Football League by playing in the NCAA. I see. We are talking about participants at a collegiate level, so around 20, 23, something like that, years old? Yep, generally between 18 and 23. Awesome. So um, what were the details of the study? We know who were the participants, but what was the sample size and maybe some additional information about them that you can share? Yeah, absolutely. And, and one thing I'd like to mention on the topic of the NCAA, college football in the United States is extremely popular. And so what you find with a lot of these high-level collegiate teams is a great deal of resources invested into their programs. So the sport of American football values strength and power. So because it's such a popular sport, this is a really excellent way to find people who are genetically predisposed to carrying a great deal of muscle and strength. So it, it's a very convenient sample. And once these guys get into a college football program, they are exposed to really advanced training and nutrition services. So a lot of these teams have dietitians and strength and conditioning staffs that are helping these guys gain as much muscle and strength as they can. So that's why it sets itself up to be such a unique population for this particular research question. But to get into the details of the study, we had DEXA information from three different collegiate football teams. So the total sample size was 235. So substantially more than the, you know, 74 that we, we see from the previous paper. So there was three teams that made up this sample. Two competed in Division One, which is the highest level of competition. One of the teams competed in Division Two, which is the second highest level of competition. The data were collected and organized. They were compiled. And then we, for each athlete, we calculated their fat-free mass index using equations that are commonly used. So basically divided their fat-free mass, divided by their height squared. And then we did a slight regression adjustment. And a lot of people get confused about why that's done. And what we find is that with fat-free mass index, we divide it by height squared, uh, which assumes that with a taller person with bigger stature that they're going to essentially grow in, in two dimensions, kind of. So to divide simply by height would not be sufficient. But when you divide by height squared, there's still a slight positive bias where taller people still have a little positive bias with their fat-free mass index. And what that's telling us is that when we divide by height squared, it doesn't fully account for the fact that a taller person is also wider and thicker. The problem is if you divide by height cubed, you would be overcorrecting for that bias. So what Corey did in their paper and what we did as well is we used regression so that we could do a, a very slight adjustment so that there was no bias by which height would increase or decrease your fat-free mass index level. And so the slope of our regression corrections were very similar. And as a scientist, you want to be as precise as you can, but I can tell you that the extra adjustment for height, no one was really changing by more than a single point in terms of their fat-free mass index. So if your raw score was a 25, I don't care how tall you were, you really weren't going to change more than going down or up by one point. But that's just a little technical detail to kind of explain with the paper. But that's essentially how the, it's, it's a very straightforward study, uh, very simple. And, you know, we compiled the data, ran the calculations, and what we are interested in seeing is once the fat-free mass index value is calculated, does it look like 25 really holds up as kind of a natural ceiling or upper limit level? And what we found was that in this population of high-level athletes who are probably genetically predisposed to carrying a lot of muscle and who are trained very well 
and have access to great nutrition services. With these athletes, 25 just didn't seem to hold up as an upper limit. It's also worth noting that the NCAA has its own year-round drug testing protocol. So these athletes are all subject to random drug testing through the NCAA policies. So we felt pretty confident that if there were potentially some steroid users who were snuck in there, they would be very few and far between because the the risk at stake with using drugs in this population uh, likely is not worth the rewards. The, the types of punishments they'd be liable to receive are pretty severe. And uh, the NCAA, in my opinion, does a very good job with their drug testing. So um, what we found was that 25 just really didn't seem to hold up as, as an upper limit. We had a large percentage of our athletes that were above that level. Off the top of my head, I believe it was somewhere to the tune of 20 to 30 percent of the sample was exceeding that. So it's the type of thing where even if somebody was going to say, oh, well, you know, maybe somebody was on drugs, we didn't have a third of our sample on drugs above that limit, I'm telling you. So um, what we found is the question is kind of difficult because we're trying to figure out what an upper limit is. And we know that people are going to vary greatly based on their genetic predisposition, their training practices, their nutrition practices. So for us, it was kind of an idea of for most people, what is the highest fat-free mass index you're likely to achieve. And so we felt that the 97 and a half percentile cutoff would be a pretty appropriate cutoff, whereby basically anybody above that percentile would be viewed as, as someone who has really, really unique predisposition to muscle. So our, our 97.5 percentile was 28.1, which is, you know, three full points higher than the previous estimate. And we actually had a maximal value observed of 31.7. And like I said, with this population, we're likely to see particularly linemen who have body fat levels well up into the 20s and beyond. And so it's not unique if you look at sumo wrestler literature to find people whose fat-free mass index is comfortably above 30 and really well into the mid and even high 30s. So for us, it, it was interesting to see that when you open it up to a sample that is more highly trained with better access to training resources and people who are really elite strength and power related athletes, the limit of 25 just doesn't seem to hold up. So that, that's kind of the, the overall summary in a nutshell. I'm really happy you mentioned the fact that these are uh, elite guys and they have access to a wealth of training and nutritional information because very often you can hear um, in bodybuilding groups on, uh, or forums that, well, uh, actually the natural bodybuilders aren't the most gifted because all the gifted guys just go to the NFL. So, <laughs> so it's I, funny. I think they're correct. Yeah. <laughs> I, I very much believe that. Yeah, and the um, sample size was much higher and the population was much more relevant to the topic we are trying to investigate and the the technology is much more up to date. Yeah, the, the previous study did their body fat with um, caliper testing. So I feel a lot better about having DEXA data rather than skinfold. I remember uh, from Greg's article that they also compared some Mr. Universe winners and those were based on kind of like uh, some sort of uh, pictures of them. And they kind of just looked at the pictures. Well, that looks kind of like 12 percent ish. Yeah. <laughs> which is just, <laughs> which is just, that's just Facebook group level. Hey guys, what's my body fat level? Yeah. <laughs> kind of analysis. I, I... I feel like I kind of purposely omitted that part of the paper, not to hide it, but if you're going to tell me in the peer-reviewed literature that you guessed their body fat, it's just not, it's not data that I want to spend a lot of time on, if that makes sense. I understand it's, it's a unique approach they took because they're trying to look at high-level athletes basically in the pre-steroid era, so I understand why they did it, but it's very difficult for me to get over the idea of publishing visual guesses of, of body fat. Sure. Although even the steroids ones is a controversy because I remember posting on Instagram about it a while back and a friend of mine commented that, well, testosterone was, wasn't actually invented, that it was invented in the 20-something or in 30s and actually those guys could have been already on testosterone. Who knows? Yeah, I think what what they're getting at is kind of that time frame before it was so readily accessible, before mass production had really kicked in and it was kind of getting passed around like crazy. Because you can do the same kind of thing with growth hormone. It's always been around, but 
you know, until I think that I believe it's the 80s is when we actually started making recombinant growth hormone. Um, and before that, you had to basically get it from cadavers. So with, it's with that kind of premise, it's like, well, yeah, the growth hormone, you kind of always could have got it, but really not. So I, I think that's the approach they took. But absolutely, a well-connected person probably could have got it earlier. Yeah, and I, I like that you mentioned right from the get-go that these guys were drug tested because, of course, that doesn't mean they were drug free, but they were drug tested and I personally just find it sort of a nihilistic view to just assume that well everyone is lying you see the same stuff in natural bodybuilding and yeah. just... do you mind if I share a little story about that yeah please so um, I've talked with Greg Knuckles a lot about this and we've come to the conclusion that the more you deal with elite athletes the slower you are to accuse people of steroid use I was down in Atlanta working with they were athletes who had finished their collegiate football career and were about to enter the National Football League extreme extremely high level athletes and this one athlete comes in we were doing some nutritional support for them and they're training like crazy I mean these guys are training six eight hours a day so this guy comes in after working out about six hours and his physique is phenomenal looks like he's just built out of stone no body fat extremely muscular high fat free mass index and we start talking with him we say the the lead dietitian was the one really running the show but i was around he says what did you eat before you came to work out and the guys look surprised by the question says i i mean nothing you know who cares and he says okay well you've been working out for six hours what have you been eating during your workout and he says uh, it's been sipping on some water and he goes okay well what are you going to eat when you get home and he goes eh, yeah, i don't know i'll find something i was just <laughs> dumbfounded by the fact that the idea that this person because I know that 99% of the Facebook world if they saw a picture of him would say yeah you can't you can't do that naturally and I'm like we can't even get this guy to eat breakfast you think he's really cycling several drugs like we can't get him to have a sandwich so what's really amazing is when you interact with these people that are the only way to describe them is genetic anomalies but they're not on drugs they're just really really good <laughs> and it's like, even without trying, they're going to be phenomenal. And if they do try, they're going to be unbelievable. That's uh, that's usually one of my issues with the whole, well, uh, hard work beats talent when talent doesn't work hard. Yeah, well, if talent starts working, you're fucked anyway. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, when you see the talent working hard, you then you immediately are like, well, this isn't a human being. This is impossible. Um, so yeah, being able to interact with some of these athletes has been really eye-opening because that echo chamber of people who immediately assume that everyone's on steroids, you'll generally find that they don't work with elite athletes. And the second they do is the second that they are a little bit slower to accuse people because there are some really incredible, incredible athletes walking around that just have insane genetics. Yeah, so going back to the results, so you had one guy almost at... 32 that's just stupendous i mean yeah that would seem like a resort even i would look at it a bit skeptically mm -hmm. 32 is just i think even higher than uh, arnold although i hate those i'm sure you've seen is that netty witch hunt site yeah. that compares and usually references someone like friend zane or something well zane had a fmi of 20 whatever it was and he was a known steroid user so obviously you can't have it higher that's just bullshit but yeah it's it's poor logic in terms of just the face value of the argument it's not good logic the other thing i would mention is that the individual that was pushing 32 was a defensive lineman and a defensive lineman it, it's not atypical to see them well into above 20 even 30 percent body fat walking around at well over 300 pounds so in that sense, we are almost talking about a sumo wrestler. You know what I mean? And so these sumo wrestlers, it's very, there's several documented instances of them reaching the mid to high 30s. So at first, yeah, you see a value like 31.7, you go, oh my God, Arnold wasn't even that. Well, Arnold was never 35% body fat, <laughs> you know? If Arnold was walking around at 35% body fat pushing 400 pounds, yeah, he'd probably be up there. Yeah, so I can't miss the opportunity to ask you because it really just fits in so nicely. I'm sure you've seen these um, speculations because I can't really call them anything else that um, 
especially in the bodybuilding sphere, that, well, um, you shouldn't really go over 15% body fat if your goal is to build muscle because then your insulin sensitivity goes to shit and you will only start putting on body fat and basically almost no muscle. And this idea just kept bugging me because I was aware of, of the sumo wrestler data you mentioned that they have a stupid high muscle mass, basically. Yes, of course, they are also fat, but that would just kind of negate this whole idea that you can't uh, put on muscle. I mean, my personal idea at this point is that you can put on probably almost identical if not very similar amounts of muscle it's just that you also put on body fat and because you are at a higher body fat level you just kind of look a bit worse and obviously if you are sedentary or something then your health is going to degrade but as long as you are active and lifting weights because i wouldn't assume anyone wants to put on maximum amount of muscle without lifting weights so as long as you have your health overall in check i don't really see how you couldn't be able to put on muscle even at 20 percent body fat or something like that and certainly it would seem that these guys are proof arguing in favor of that concept yeah i i think you raise a really good point um i don't believe that there's a, a level at which your body fat is too high so that it impedes your ability to gain muscle i think that's an instance and we see this a lot in our area where you take a molecular concept like this well insulin sensitivity would be favorable and you really start uh, extrapolating it to various scenarios i can't imagine that at a, a high enough body fat that all of a sudden your insulin resistance will will be such that you can't gain muscle anymore i don't see a lot of plausibility for that one of the reasons that i'm interested in these types of approximations for fat free mass index comes very close to what you're getting at and that is this so I, i'm a professional natural bodybuilder and i uh tend to be the type of competitor that I don't come in looking huge, but I lose all my fat. And so I compete based on conditioning and symmetry. So for me, it makes sense for me to bulk pretty hard in the off season because I don't believe I'm anywhere near my genetic limit. But the question for me was using some of these approximations of basically genetic ceiling levels of lean mass, who actually benefits from bulking? And are there athletes out there who are so close to their genetic limit that bulking is basically just not worth it. And and what I mean by that is as a bodybuilder, let's say I'm stepping on stage with a super high fat-free mass index. And that's an important distinction because your off-season limit for fat-free mass index is almost certainly going to be higher than your stage conditioning limit. You know, like we talked about, higher body fat can support a higher fat-free mass index. So if the general ceiling for someone with plenty of body fat is in the low 30s, that doesn't mean that it's going to be feasible for a lot of people to step on stage at 5% body fat in the low 30s. That would be pretty eye-opening pretty jarring. So as you get leaner, it's less less feasible to think that you can be pushing into the 30s. But my my general question is, you know, for who is bulking recommended? But if somebody's stepping on stage with a fat-free mass index of 28, do they really want to spend their off-season pushing up their body fat knowing that they really don't have much higher to go in terms of the amount of lean mass they can actually bring on the stage? And so for those individuals, it might make sense to say there's no reason to get above 15% body fat anymore because you're pretty close to what you're going to get in terms of lean mass. So if you want to really go out and compete well next season, keep all the lean mass you got, but get really, really shredded. And so I think that's one of the utilities of finding these kind of upper limits is we can start to figure out for some athletes, if it's better for them to purely focus on symmetry and conditioning because they're basically topped out from a muscle perspective versus people in my situation who conditioning is never a problem, but I need all the lean mass I can get. So I don't think that there's a one-size-fits-all recommendation when it comes to how much fat is acceptable in the off-season because if, if you're someone who's in my shoes who, at the amateur level, I did great. If you have any muscle and can get really shredded, you're going to do well in natural bodybuilding at the amateur level. But I stepped on the pro stage this summer and it's a different ball game i need the mass so i'm not going to be sitting here weighing my spinach when i'm you know three years out from my next pro show <laughs> because i need to put on all the muscle i can if i get up to 18 percent body fat in the off season what do i care you know because because if i don't spend the time to put on that muscle when i'm this far from my genetic ceiling it's just not going to pan out for me when it when it comes stage time yeah i agree i agree absolutely um i was discussing with this with a friend of mine and he has been lifting for something like 17 years 
and he has competitive aspirations he's a national champion so for him it makes sense that you wouldn't want to this year for example I told him to start dieting earlier and he lost something like 14 kilos in 12 weeks I think he went from 94 to 78 79 something like that and in the last month he was doing two hours of cardio a day so that's just insane yeah so for him yeah he told me he he would never go above 15% again and for him yeah I agree because it's just not worth it but for myself for example I'm I'm 23 last time I estimated I have on FFMI around 22 point something 23 maybe not yeah. even 23 i know guys who are the same height as me around six feet tall and who are seven eight ten kilos heavier in muscle so yeah. <laughs> i have a plenty of room to grow i think Definitely, so yeah. i just wanted to kind of hear your thoughts on this topic and when i see young guys like you said 18 19 20 year old guys who are fat phobic and who also have competitive aspirations because okay if you want to look decent all year and just want to be fit and healthy whatever but usually these are guys who are who want to be a pro bodybuilder and who want to compete and for them like you said it just it's not the most uh, ideal strategy in my opinion oh i fully agree and i also i understand the other perspective because it's not fun to be chubby. You'd rather look great all the time and feel great all the time. And so I definitely see the appeal to staying 12, 13% body fat, keeping all your cardio in because it makes you feel good and you look good. At the same time, I think that if for no reason other than just the practical aspect, taking a predetermined amount of time and effort to simply put on mass probably serves well in the long run for competitive bodybuilders. I don't think you need to, you know, become completely obese every offseason. But I can tell you, for me, there was a three-year period when I was in college. I basically went from 150 pounds to about 195. And I, I took a solid amount of time to just work on getting big and getting strong. And I think I'm probably, in the years since, I've really not gotten much beyond 175. And I think I got a little bit too comfortable keeping a low body fat or low-ish body fat all the time. And I'm probably overdue to make an Another big push to put on some lean mass. So there's times where it's, I, I think it's a little bit helpful to, for lack of a better term, just bite the bullet and deal with it and just say, yeah, I'm probably not going to look great on the beach this summer, but in the long run, this might be the best thing for my competitive aspirations. Yeah. And uh, the other aspect is uh, the psychological one and kind of like behavioral one although those two kind of go hand in hand because for example someone who has been lifting for 17 18 maybe 20 years and has lived the bodybuilder life they have the nutritional habits usually to keep them lean whereas for example even right now for me would be a massive mental effort to stay around 10 to 12 percent body fat because i was overweight most of my life so i have certain habits that still (laughs) i carry with me and uh, they still kind of haven't left me and so for me it would be kind of like mentally drained and tired 365 days a year just to beat 12 percent instead of being 15 17 18 virtually for no benefit at all I have become leaner and leaner and leaner at the same body weight year after year. And I can see myself in maybe 10 to 12 years being able to hold 12% body fat comfortably and not be a big issue. But that just has to be earned in my opinion. And it's not worth having a, <laughs> a continual eating disorder just to have abs. Oh, yeah. it's. I actually was talking about this last night because people know I compete in bodybuilding and someone asked me about what my caloric intake per day is under the assumption that 365 days a year from now until the day I die I'm going to be weighing my broccoli and my spinach and I was like it's just not really how it works for me at my stage I very generally try to monitor my caloric intake in the sense that if I had extra carbs for breakfast maybe I go a little lighter at dinner but very very broad you know we're talking about making changes over years not days now during prep yeah you have to be meticulous but like you said it's so much sacrifice for so little reward to try to maintain about 4% body fat lower than you're comfortable at. Um, so I'm with you. In, in the off season, maybe I look best in the off season at 12%, but my body really likes being at 15. I'm probably going to hang out at 15 for most of the time because the psychological benefit of getting that time to not be meticulous about every aspect of your life can be a valuable thing. Yeah, and that was uh, that was a pretty big uh, digression, but I think it was valuable 
people, so it was worth it. Just going back to the FFMI, just to kind of round it up, I think we've established that an FFMI in a football player is going to be different than an FFMI in a bodybuilder. So we have a couple of case studies and there's one that showed guys step on stage at around the 25 FFMI, so it's clearly possible. Do you know by any chance, because I've looked at the WNBF finals, and do you have any idea what those guys uh, have the FFMI like? For example, someone like Sam Watt or uh, someone like David Kay. Because Sam Watt, yeah. I've seen him post on Instagram, he was 100 kilos, 220 pounds in contest shape. That's just absurd. Yeah, that would make for a really valuable article. I don't know off the top of my head what those numbers are looking like these days. But based on what I've seen working with some athletes and talking to people, um, I talked to Lane Norton about this, Will Grazioni, Peter Fitchin. I think we all were kind of, I don't want to speak for anybody but myself, but what I drew from those conversations is just kind of getting down to brass tacks. What is the limit for a stage conditioned bodybuilder? I wouldn't be shocked if there are people out there who can get on a bodybuilding stage at 26, 27, 28. Above 28, I'd have to see it to believe it. But I, again, the more I work with these absolute genetic anomalies, the less likely I am to just immediately assume steroids. But for these natural guys, the thing that really drove me crazy was we have off-season bodybuilders that people are saying if you're above 25, you're, you're clearly not natural. And that's just, it's becoming a very untenable hypothesis. I wouldn't be shocked to see a natural bodybuilder pushing 30 in the off-season. So I think the important factor is that your off-season fat-free mass index is going to be different than your stage condition limit. So if you can push 29 in the off season, I don't see why you couldn't get on stage around 26 or 27. And if you're one of those freaks that can push into the 30s in the off season, potentially even a bit higher. But it would be very interesting to go through. But again, we'd have to <laughs> we'd have to use the the Corey method and basically guess the body fat level. That that's kind of where I'm at in terms of where people should be perceiving their limit to be. And, and that's keeping in mind that most people will not achieve that. Most people, kind of by definition, are pretty average. Um, so <laughs> that's kind of how averages work, is that most people are pretty average. So just because we set this limit doesn't mean if your stage-ready fat-free mass index is 22, that you're not, you're not pushing hard enough in the gym or you're not eating right. We have to keep in mind these are ceiling levels, not averages. Yeah, definitely. And the other aspect of bodybuilding is, is genetic shape and structure that that's so so variable and influences things so so much you see a guy at 165 pounds and he just looks aesthetically so pleasing and that's the the funny thing about ffmi most people just they engage in this virtual dick measuring contest kind of yeah. just look at others and oh what is his height what is his weight oh he can't be natural and essentially all they are saying is oh i don't look like that and i don't think I will ever look like that. <laughs> so essentially, yeah. what they care about is how they look. And for that, really, FFMI is kind of useless. Yeah, I, I agree. There's there's a, a couple guys that kind of fit that. I remember meeting, his name's Eric Salazar. I know him. He's friends with Joshua Verlasco, yeah. who I spoke with previously. Yeah. So I remember meeting him at a conference and I had seen pictures of him on social media and his arms are just out of this world. And I was just like so skeptical of this guy, honestly, because I'm like, I just I'm not used to seeing arms like that on natural folks. But then you, you meet him in person and his body weight is shockingly low. He just has amazing structure, particularly his arms. The muscle belly shape, the insertion points, it, it's, it just lines up. Another one that comes to mind is uh, Jeff Nippert. I think he's a WNBF pro, maybe. You'll see these guys, and they tell you what their height and weight is, and you say, that no way. You, you look <laughs> yeah. 30 pounds heavier than that, and it's because they have some combination of insane shape to their muscle bellies, incredible in origins and insertions, impossibly small joints that happen to support these huge muscle bellies. So yeah, if you give me a bodybuilder's height, weight, body fat, fat-free mass index, I can guess who looks better, but it won't be perfect. Yeah, <laughs> Jeff is so funny because I've seen him include his height in the YouTube video descriptions because <laughs> apparently people ask him so often. Yeah. And 
Have you seen uh, pictures with him and his mom? I we, we're friends on Facebook, so I believe I have. I think his mom's like pretty jacked, right? Oh yeah, and they have a most muscular kind of like you know Alberto Nunez's signature pose that I don't know what you call it when you put your palms together and you yeah, flex your chest. Yeah, I love and, that one. Yeah, so Jeff had uh, that one with next to his mother, and his mother's delts looked almost identical to his from from <laughs> yeah. a shape point of view, like extremely round, extremely full. Like, of course, they were smaller in size, but it was almost identical. So yeah. you could already tell where he got his genetics from. Definitely, yeah. I would like to go over quickly the other methods that people use to assess muscular potential because we've touched on before that uh, the biggest value really with this whole F of my conversation is maybe establishing a goal to shoot for and yeah. kind of assessing how far you are from that most people would be very served to think that hey a 28 FFMI lean is not only realizable it's, it should be the goal for me because even if they don't achieve it, it they will get closer to it than if they assume that a 23 would be all they could achieve Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think the lower we set our limits and expectations, the the easier it is and the earlier we are to, instead of pushing hard, kind of reel back the effort and coast. So I think there's certainly value in shooting for an index value that maybe requires elite genetics and Maybe you don't have those genetics and you don't reach it, but it's better to shoot for that than to say, well, I'm at 25 and a half, so this is as good as it gets. I also think it's important to understand that when we look at these limits, they're limits for now. Um, like you've said, I, I don't think most of the talent in sport is gravitating toward natural bodybuilding. It's possible that some people out there, if they truly trained only to maximize their muscle mass, could really put up some incredible values. And the thing I always come back to is go online, look at pictures of world-class bodybuilders from the 1920s. And they are people who were revered in their day for their physique. And they are people who now would place very poorly at an amateur natural show. The way that physiques have evolved over the last several decades is phenomenal. I don't know how much farther it will go from a natural perspective, but as we continue to figure out better ways to train, better ways to eat, and as we expose more elite sets of genes to these conditions, I'm open to accepting that there are some really genetically gifted people out there who will totally shift what we think about these limits in, in the next few decades. So it's exciting. And, and like you said, it, it's a shame for us to try to limit these people by saying if you're over 25 i'm gonna drag your name through the mud and tell everybody you're a liar you know yeah and that's essentially what people do when they tell someone that he must be on drugs when he's competing in in a natural division can we just go through quickly to the other models usually people like to use the lean gains model the muscle to bone ratio and casey butts formula yeah absolutely there are as you mentioned there are some other models out there beyond fat-free mass index. So um, the, the lean gains model is, is a really, really simple approach. And with the lean gains model, basically all it is is it's a method of calculating your projected maximum stage weight based on your height and your and your weight, basically. Um, there's the muscle-to-bone ratio, which I think is credited to Francis Hallway. But um, that's looking at basically... A, a pure ratio of how much muscle can be supported by a given mass of bone. There's also the Casey Butt formula, which is a little bit unique in the sense that it uses height, but it also uses the circumference of the wrist and the circumference of the ankle. And the reason that I summarize them all together in one long sentence is because whether you want to do lean gains, muscle to bone, the you know Casey Butts formula, or you want to use fat-free mass index, these are all approximations of the same concept. And so I would expect that in a given sample of people, if you were to calculate all four of these methods, that all four of them would correlate very highly with each other. Because what we're basically doing here is accepting the general concept that I think is a very justifiable concept, and that is that a larger skeleton 
a larger frame is more capable of supporting large muscle masses. And that absolutely makes sense. Greg points out in his article, we've been using that type of logic for years when it comes to the, the meat yield of different livestock. And it makes sense in terms of face validity when you think of what muscle is even supposed to do. Muscle creates movement by pulling on the levers of our skeleton. It makes sense that a larger and more broad skeleton could support a larger musculature. I think that these these methods are based on a sound principle and they have various methods of assessing basically the frame upon which one would build muscle. So the, the Lean Games one just uses height. It's a very simple way to do it. It's a pretty quick but you know fairly broad instrument. Uh, I don't think you'll get the most precise estimate, but the benefit there is the simplicity. It's extremely, extremely easy to use. The muscle-to-bone ratio, and Greg wrote an, an incredible article summarizing all of these, but the muscle-to-bone ratio, if done properly, is going to require several measurements. I think it's like 22 measurements that go into this formula. So it's a good model. It's going to give you a nice prediction, but it's a bit tedious. That's a lot of measurements to take. Casey Butts formula, height, wrist, and ankle circumference, Pretty, pretty quick and easy, and the benefit to fat-free mass index is that if you have a DEXA printout, I mean, it is ready to go. Or really, any decent estimate of body fat percentage, if you know your height, your weight, and your body fat percentage, or you can get a good estimate of your body fat percentage, fat-free mass index is going to be extremely easy to calculate. So I've written about fat-free mass index because with the tools I have available to me, it is the easiest to use, and I think it is reasonably predictive of potential for muscularity, but I am not married to it. You know, I think these other methods are completely acceptable ways to get a nice estimate of your potential. And I think the reason that they're all reasonably appropriate is because they're all based on the very same concept. A larger, taller, wider, more broad skeleton, in theory, should be able to support more musculature. Yeah, definitely. I remember when, when I started lifting in high school, uh, we went to the gym with a classmate of mine and we measured our wrist circumference and mine was like 16 centimeters. So that's like just for you in six inches and six and a half inches, something like that. Yeah. And his was like 20 centimeters. So wow. eight inches. Yeah. So that was four centimeter difference. That's just insane. And go figure. He had much wider shoulder than me. He also had, I think, wider hips, which in this case, or for bodybuilding, is kind of a curse, but yeah. it is what it is. But he was definitely larger. And here's the funny part. He since then stopped lifting. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. So, so this just goes to show you that no matter how gifted you might be, if you don't put in the work, it really doesn't matter. So all these tools are great if you want to see just for fun what you could achieve or what you could hope to achieve, but it still requires decades of work. So if you're not willing to put in that work, it really doesn't matter. Yeah, and you bring up a good point. When it comes to the visual appearance of a physique, that's where it gets more about proportions than just the general potential. And, you know, you'll, you'll find these people that are one in a million that have these super broad shoulders, super narrow hips, are able to put on muscle, but also have narrow joints, and they're going to look 30 pounds heavier than they are, you know? So if even if your wrist measurement isn't ideal, you could still have proportions that are very favorable. Yeah, if in case anyone wants to see someone who looks like that, just go Google Chris Bumstead. I've actually, I'm not familiar with him. I'll have to look. He was the runner-up at the Classic Physique Olympia. Look oh, him up. Cool. He's like 22 years old Canadian and he's just absurd looking. Is there a final thought, final idea you want to leave people with when it comes to this whole topic of assessing muscular potential? And most importantly, should we care about it at all or how should we look at it from a practical point of view? Yeah, I think um, my takeaway point is these different assessments of your potential for lean mass, they are always going to be rough estimates. So they should not be used as a tool to limit your perceived ability level or your perceived potential. What they can be used to do is get a fairly objective assessment of how close you are to your genetic ceiling, and I believe that that can be used in a beneficial way. And so like we've talked about previously, I think the main place where it comes into play is trying to get an objective measure of when I'm in stage condition, am I as big as I should be? And more importantly, what potential do I have to actually make my bulk 
beneficial. And so if you're pushing what we believe to be limit the fat-free mass index, and you've been training your butt off for years, and you haven't been putting on a ton of lean mass lately, you can use all those inputs of data to triangulate and to come to the conclusion that you just might be pushing your ceiling level. And if you're in that scenario, you would probably stay leaner in the off-season and really focus on symmetry conditioning, bringing up weak points, other things than, well, I guess I'll just bulk to, you know, 30% body fat and see if it helps. On the flip side, if you are consistently gaining lean mass every time you compete and you're finding that your fat-free mass index is significantly below what we would expect as a limit, that's probably good information to, to indicate that you still have plenty of bulking capacity and it might be beneficial for you to really focus in on gaining some lean mass. So in general, do I think we have completely nailed a single value that represents the genetic limit for everybody? Absolutely not. I think it'll always be a range. I think it will continue to drift upward as we get better at training, better with nutrition, and as more genetic freaks figure out they really like lifting weights. So I believe the number will always kind of trend upward until we asymptotically over several decades reach a true physiological limit. I don't think we know what that is yet, but nonetheless, I think it's a really, really helpful tool. And it's something that I use to guide my bulking and cutting strategies. And I think it can help other people do the same. Awesome. That was a great roundup. So before I ask you the final question, could you please let everyone listening uh, know where they can find you on social media? What is your blog, your research gate profile if you have one? Yeah, so um, my name is Eric Trexler. I'm on uh, Facebook and Twitter just as Eric Trexler. I have a research gate page, Eric T. Trexler. I have a blog. It's called Trexler Fitness. It's just a little WordPress site where when I really want to write something, I can go to it. I also contribute some articles to biolane.com and to Avatar Nutrition. I'm all kind of all around. I do have an Instagram, but I'm terrible at posting to it because I've always been a lot more into written content than images. So um, I have an Instagram, but I rarely feel compelled to actually post anything because I'd rather write. But yeah, so I'm, I'm all over and generally pretty accessible. Awesome. And I will make sure to link those in the description of this episode. So with that, we've arrived to the final question that we always end our episodes on. And that is, what is your definition of success? My definition of success would be with whatever endeavor you're, you're in, to be perfectly content but still motivated. You know what I mean? So really satisfied with where you're at but still hungry to do more. That's maybe the definition and probably the path to success is being able to uh, to feel good about where you're at and what you've done but to still have that, that passion and that motivation to keep pushing it. Awesome. And with that, I would like to thank you for giving up your time today to sit down and talk with me. It was a pleasure and I highly enjoyed it. I enjoyed it too. Thank you for having me on. My pleasure and I hope you will be able to talk uh, sometime in the future. Definitely. Then have a great day and take care. All right, you too. And that was episode 7 of the Muscle Engineer podcast with uh, Eric Trexler. I really hope you liked this episode and you found something valuable that you can implement in your own life and training. If you've liked this episode, Make sure to check out Eric's um, social media accounts and um, his research papers and um, the two excellent articles that Greg Knuckles has written on the topic of um, the FFMI and uh, finding your own uh, muscular potential. And um, just to reiterate two main points that I think were particularly important. One is to never underestimate your own potential because you might be artificially setting the cap um, for what you could achieve. The second important thing to take away is to not get bogged down on a particular body fat percentage point when it comes to assessing your own um, off-season or muscle gaining period. Um, just because some people can stay at 10 to 12% body fat or whatever and uh, make good muscle gaining progress, that doesn't mean you can or that you should. And um, simply trying to constantly fight your body and maintain an uh, artificially low set point just because you feel like you need to can be actually detrimental and uh, I think uh, Eric's research is is a great um, proof of the concept that you can build muscle even if you are in the mid to high 
teens or even the low 20s and going above I don't think it's uh, necessary or uh, recommended simply from an aesthetic point of view and uh, just because it will take you so long to cut down those would be my main two important takeaways so um, with that we'll wrap up this episode again as always feel free to reach out to me if you have any questions or feedback and if you like the episode make sure to leave a review on itunes or wherever you get your podcast from thank you and uh, have a great week until next time bye